I don't think we understand confidence. Let me say it even more bluntly. I think that a lot of us confuse confidence with arrogance and bluster and a complete lack of recognition of one's own flaws and insecurities. I think part of what has to happen in our society is a deeper understanding of what confidence actually is. Confidence can't exist in the absence of insecurity. Every human being is insecure. Every human being is afraid. And a person who is willing to actually admit that is actually more confident than the person who refuses to admit it. Because it takes courage to admit that you're insecure. What's up, Airplane Mode listeners? This is your host, Clay Skipper. This season, we're exploring the theme of confidence. Most of our conversations so far have been with people who have detailed how they got their particular type of confidence. Today, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're going to be exploring self-doubt or insecurity. So my guest is Dr. Barry Michaels, a psychotherapist. I first came across Dr. Michaels in a great New Yorker story that sort of showcased him as the therapist in Confidence Whisper to Hollywood. So screenwriters who are struggling with writer's block or actors who weren't able to deliver performances they wanted to, they went to see Dr. Michaels and he unlocked their best, most creative selves. The way he does this or the sort of working theory behind his work is something he calls shadow work or working with your shadow. The shadow is a psychological concept from Carl Jung. And in this episode, Dr. Michaels defines it as an alternate self that lives inside of you that consists of all of the qualities you wish you weren't but are. So it's basically all of your insecurities or the things you're ashamed of or aren't willing to really show to the world. So Dr. Michael's work is all about engaging with that shadow and trying to overcome these insecurities so that you aren't hiding part of yourself. And once you do that, you feel more confident and that affects your professional success. It affects your romantic relationships. It affects how you just move and flow through the world. Two other things I particularly enjoy about Dr. Michael's work. One is that he has worked with some very successful and very high profile people and they also struggle with self-doubt and a lack of confidence. So if you really feel plagued by those things out there, take some solace in knowing that pretty much everyone is doubting themselves on some level. And also he's been doing this work for decades now, and it does seem to be very resonant and successful with a lot of people. So if you're skeptical or cynical, and I understand why you might be, this episode goes deep into feelings and emotions. He puts me through an exercise that involves me engaging with my shadow that left me feeling pretty vulnerable. Give it a chance because I do think I do think he gives a lot of techniques and actionable advice on how to overcome your insecurities and gain a greater sense of confidence. So I think of the episodes we've done, it might actually be the most practical. If you want to learn more about Dr. Michaels and his work, check out thetoolsbook.com. Hopefully you'll find some tools in here for you to use. Here's my conversation with Dr. Barry Michaels. All right, Dr. Michaels, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. We have spent the episodes that we've recorded for season two so far talking to people who had display some level of sort of elite confidence. We've talked to a cave diver, an NBA sharpshooter, a master trash talker. And so mm. I'm excited to have you on to talk about a little bit of the flip side of that coin, which is, I think, something we all struggle with, which is self-doubt. So before we do that, though, I want to set some table stakes. So how would you define confidence? Like what is confidence in, in your conception of it? You know, to me, confidence is the felt experience that you can act in the world and have an impact on the world. 
if you have to be on your own in order to feel confident, you're really not confident. So to me, confidence has a lot to do with how you function in the world. Now, it also has to do with how you speak to yourself and how disciplined you are in your life. But the people that I treat who are really confident have a sense, it's just an experience of themselves as masterful in the world is what I would call it. You can call it anything you want, but I think if you've ever felt confident in your life, you know what I'm talking about. It's a sense that I really know my stuff when it comes to this situation or that situation, whatever it is. And when you you speak of people you work with, how many people that come to see you generally struggle with some form of self-doubt or insecurity? Everyone. 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 Yes. And, And this is one of the most important things that I can say to people because we have a real myth in our society, which is that there are some people, whether it's because they're so wealthy or so famous or so accomplished or whatever, that they've somehow graduated beyond insecurity. And I'm telling you, I treat some of the most wealthy, successful people in the world, and every single one of them is insecure. I mean, thank God, because it keeps me in business, but (laughs) but insecurity is built into the experience of being human. I mean, if if you step back from it for a moment and think about life and all living beings, whether it's plant life or animal life, we are the only living beings who have the knowledge that we're going to die. I mean, that's insecurity defined. You cannot Hmm. not be insecure with that knowledge. It's scary. And I really feel like we do a disservice by setting up a group of people who seem, because of the way they behave or the way they're portrayed in the media, to have gotten rid of that insecurity, rather than saying to ourselves, no, everybody has to battle with this. And if you can't deal with insecurity in the right way, you can never really be confident. So confidence has to be, it it has to actually be built off of the experience of insecurity. Yes, because I was going to ask you where insecurity sort of comes from, because obviously I would say that we're not born with it, but it it seems like you're saying some of it comes, or a large portion of it comes from the fact that it's going to end at some point. Some of it comes from that existential feeling of like, we are temporary you know we are Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we are fragile beings in this world and it is going to get away from us at some point but i agree with you in in a more personal sense insecurity comes developmentally as a child becomes aware of him or herself and in particular becomes aware acutely of those qualities that they have that are disapproved of by their environment And it sort of depends on the type of family you grow up in. If your family disapproves of, you know, sadness, you know, it's like a cheery family and everybody's supposed to be happy all the time, then the sad part of you, you're going to feel insecure about that because it's disapproved of. Later on, by the way, you move outside the family into systems that have different values from the family. For example, in boy world, it's gotten better than when I was a kid, but it's still not great to be shy, to be sad, 
to feel vulnerable, to get your feelings easily hurt, to be insensitive. And so those qualities get pushed away from your identity. The problem with pushing the qualities away, with sort of repressing them in a way, is that they're still there haunting you. Mm -hmm. And from that Mm. point forward, you have this fear, which is that somebody's going to see those qualities. What we're really talking about, by the way, is the concept, it's a Jungian concept of the shadow, which is Uh kind of an alternate self that lives inside of you that consists of all of the qualities you wish you weren't, but are. The shadow is the source of a tremendous amount of insecurity because you can't get rid of it. Those qualities are there. You were born with them. But if you don't like them, if you're constantly disapproving of them, then you're constantly hiding them. And then you're constantly afraid that other people will see them. And that's the source of insecurity. I didn't expect to get into it this early, but I literally came from a therapy session two hours ago where we were (laughs) discussing this very thing about, you know, um, my family is a family where we did not really engage in feelings very much, which is not to say there weren't feelings, but we didn't really discuss them or label them or have the language to to talk about them, which was probably unsettling for for a small child. And so, and so a lot of my insecurity does stem from sort of, you're not supposed to be vulnerable. You're not supposed to show emotion, things like that. That is my shadow in some ways. Yeah. So do you mind if I work with you a little bit and just as a way of demonstrating how I would work with that shadow? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd I'd love to to do that. Great. So close your eyes and take some feelings that you do have inside of you and that if possible, maybe you feel leery of expressing, if not ashamed of them. Mm -hmm. And just take the feelings and push them out in front of you and give them a face and a figure that looks something like you. It might be younger or it might look worse than you because you know, you don't like this part of you. Obviously, it was disapproved of. Mm-hmm. But try to feel as if this thing that you're seeing in front of you is real. Now, just to start with, what are your impressions of him? Like, how do you feel about him? I immediately go to like a very shy middle schooler, sort yeah. of bookish, and sits at the front of the bus, reads his book, keeps to himself is quiet and yeah, and sort of feels out outside for some reason. Yes. So he doesn't belong in some way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And how do you feel about him? Like if you were to like introduce him to other people, would you feel proud of him, ashamed of him, embarrassed of him? I feel sort of tender and compassionate towards him. Great. But I, but I would not want him to be seen by other people sort of like a little brother that you don't want like you love but you don't want hanging around exactly like we're fine when we're home alone but i don't want to bring you out with my friends kind of thing exactly yeah yeah great okay so look into his eyes and ask him like this you can use your own words but the basic question is what is it like for you that i am kind of ashamed of you when we're around other people like, I want to hide you. How do you feel about that? How does it make you feel? So I'm asking that to him. Exactly. And don't worry about making up his response. Let him actually respond. Ask him and then see okay. what he says. And you don't have to do it out loud if it's uncomfortable. But what, yeah. 
lonely, I think is the, is the word that jumped out to me. Got it. Now, have you ever felt lonely in your life? Certainly. Yeah. Good. So what I want you to do is again, look into his eyes with that feeling of loneliness inside of you and say to him, I know what it's like to feel lonely and I'm really sorry I made you feel that way. So you have any response to that? I feel like his posture just sort of became less closed off. Now ask him like this. I'm speaking as you now, Clay. Mm-hmm. Tell me something, even if it's small, something that I could do in the next 24 or 48 hours that would make you feel like I've chosen a new path. Like I'm changing my relationship with you in regard to this, this thing of hiding you in front of other people. Hmm. Well, I would not hide. You know, sometimes I, I read books and I feel ashamed because mm. they're like self-helpy, if you will. Mm. <laughs> and <laughs> and like I'll place them face down on like when I'm out to dinner. If I go out to read at dinner or something, I'll place them face down so other people don't see them. Mm. And so not doing that. Yeah. So he would like you not to place them face down to sort of yes. like declare I'm reading a self-help book. Fuck you. Excuse my language. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So what you can open your eyes, what, what you and I just did was sort of classic shadow work. And Hmm. see what I would now recommend to you if this were a, you know, a bonafide therapy session is I would say to you, number one, just interact with him a little bit every day, just conjure up the image apologize to him for having left him alone and made him feel rejected. And then when you're out and about during the day, try to carry his image inside your consciousness when you're in front of people, particularly when you're talking to people so Hmm. that, and you don't have to describe it to them. You don't have to tell them anything about him if you don't want to. But what you're doing is telling him just simply by holding his image inside of you as you're talking to other people, what you're telling him is, I am not ashamed of you. I will not hide you. I own you as a quality of me. I mean, you can see naturally how that has a bearing on confidence because If you are, even if you're not aware of it, if you're hiding such an important, introspective, intellectually curious part of you, if you're hiding that, you can't possibly be as confident as you could be if you owned it. It was just like, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's, that's who I am. And again, this is not about blaming parents. Look, parents automatically have value judgments. I had value judgments with my kids. And so we unwittingly, but inevitably, create shadows in our kids. Mm-hmm. And it's up to them to own their shadows. That's, to me, that's part of the work of adulthood. Becoming a fully, fully like realized adult is owning the parts of you that you actually feel good about. But, yeah, that, yeah. but that you were made to feel bad about. Well, totally. And it's it's interesting that the place that I saw him was on the bus, because I think that, that you know, certainly even if my family was not a place where feeling was that present, 
it's also sort of like a generalized course of people I grew up with and whether or not they were that way or they weren't actually that way, that's sort of the narrative or story I've I've decided to tell myself about that time. So yes. I think it's, to your point, it's not all, at least in my case, it's not all the, the family. 100%. Also, by the way, just, I don't know if you've noticed this, but buses are shadow lands because <laughs> everybody's awkward. You know, mm-hmm. you're surrounded mm-hmm. by strangers you're, you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to make too good an impression because you don't really want to court contact with people, but at the yeah. same time, you don't, <laughs> you re- definitely don't want to leave a bad impression. Like you don't want to become the shadow of the bus, you know, kind of thing. Yes. But it's, yeah, it's just also interesting because I don't think, I think I present as the opposite of that, yes. which is very outgoing and charismatic. So it, I don't know. It's interesting. And by the way, Ooh. that's very common where the persona that we adopt is the opposite of what our shadow mm-hmm. is really like. And again, this doesn't mean that you have to go around declaring that you're a bookworm. It doesn't, it's not <laughs> about what other people know or don't know. It's just about self-acceptance. When you can accept the parts of you that you think are bad or are you know degrading in some way or that make you feel insecure, when you can accept those parts of you, you're confident. Hmm. So let's talk about that. So when you don't do that shadow work or you don't accept those parts of you, how does that usually manifest? What people who are, who deal with sort of deep self-doubt and insecurity, like what are the ways in which that most commonly manifests itself? Well, the most immediate way is that people start to avoid situations that risk revealing their shadow. You know, this is why public speaking is the number one fear in every single survey that's ever done. It's actually ranks higher in people's minds than death, which leads to that great Seinfeld (laughs) joke where he says, so that means at a funeral, most people would rather be in the casket than delivering the eulogy. (laughs) (laughs) I must be one of the last people to not hear that joke, but it is a good joke. Yeah. So, Public speaking is a classic example because there's no way to control people's perceptions of you. And if the crowd is big enough, there's no way to even know the crowd's perception of you because there's no way to focus you know, enough attention on each person to figure out what the hell do they think of me. So public speaking is shadow land. It's, it's a place where people automatically reveal their, their shadows or at least fear revealing their shadows. And it's, and it's why people are afraid of it. But there can be other areas that you avoid because you feel ashamed of your shadow. It might be going up to you know, someone that you admire or are attracted to and you can't do it because you feel like this ogre living inside of you and you don't want them to see it. It might be confronting your boss. It might be asking for a raise. It might be, you know, a situation where you want to be creative, but you're afraid it's going to be bad, which it probably will be at least in the first five drafts. And you can't get yourself to do it because you can't tolerate the fact that it's bad. It's shadowy. Hmm. So that's the first manifestation is that if you don't have a good relationship with your shadow, you stunt your own potential because you spend more energy hiding your shadow than just letting it out, doing what you're meant to do and knowing that it will be imperfect and embarrassing. It sounds like a lot of it is, to go back to your original point about a way of being in the world, it sounds like a lot of it has to do with our ability to tolerate uncertainty. Yes. Our inability to tolerate uncertainty and our inability to tolerate disapproval and judgment 
that holds people back to such a huge degree. We're so afraid of what people think of us. So again, when you love your shadow and feel that you're in an unbreakable alliance with your shadow, then you can go out there and say and do anything you want. And if someone disapproves of you, fine. I respect that. It's fine. But it doesn't change who I am because Hmm. my identity rests in the relationship with my shadow rather than in my relationship with some outside person who may be judging me for reasons of their own, by the way. Yeah. Do you have thoughts on why it is that people who are high achieving and very traditionally and superficially maybe successful struggle so much with their shadow? And, you know, those are the people, like you said, as a society we look at and we're like, they, well, they should feel confident they have everything. Well, because classically people go into, I mean, all of my patients are in the entertainment industry. People mm-hmm. go into the entertainment industry with positive motivations, by the way, as well, but I'm just going to focus on the negative motivations. They go into it, particularly actors, to court approval and attention. They crave positive attention. And I'm not saying Every actor I've ever treated craves positive attention, but most of them get into it because, because of that. And really the strange thing is that in order for them to be truly successful as an actor, they have to be willing to court disapproval because you can't act for the audience. You have to act in accordance with who the character is. And in order to act in accordance with who the character is, you have to be willing to say, People might hate this character, and that's fine with me. In fact, if they hate this character, I've succeeded because this is a bad character. Hmm. (laughs) It's a bad person. Yeah. I mean, just take Joaquin Phoenix playing the Joker. That guy can't go into that part courting approval. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What about, though, like, my mind immediately goes to some people who have, you know, I don't want to armchair diagnose anybody but i'm thinking of people who are sort of competitive psychopaths whose names might rhyme with like schmimjay or schmiger woods and like who have <laughs> who have uh, you know used their shadow to get to a level of dominance or superiority that some other people have never been able to achieve i mean obviously there are downsides to that but it it also has catapulted them to a pretty rarefied air, no? Yes. and I, But I want to make sure I understand, what are you asking about that? Like, how were well, they just, able to become so successful by allowing their shadow to take over, essentially? They were never good enough, I guess is what I'm saying. And they were never going to be good enough. And as good as they were, they probably weren't good enough. Yes. But that speaks to some deeper insecurity. But it also yes. seems to be an insecurity that had... certainly maybe destructive in their personal lives forces but in their you know in the one area where they were channeling that somewhat you could say if you're just basing it on athletic prowess and athletic excellency constructive force as well yes so look people come into any business but particularly the entertainment industry with lots of different motivations Some come in just with the desire for power and for approval and popularity or what you're really describing isn't popularity. It's just raw power. They want power. And in that way, if that's your motivation, 
having a bad relationship with your shadow is actually a good motivational system because by trying to get rid of your shadow, hide it to the greatest degree possible, you can manipulate the most number of people. So I I have no doubt that psychopathology is a strength if your goal is power. If your goal, on the other hand, is a good life with a degree of power, then I recommend you do shadow work because you'll never have a good life without your shadow. Hmm. If there's this alternate being living inside of you who is lonely and who feels alienated and who feels hopeless that you'll ever recognize him or love him in any way, you are going to be an unhappy person for the rest of your life because from time to time, he will take over and you will feel all of the desolation that he feels 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So we want to separate two things. One is what the external world rewards. And sometimes it rewards psychopathology. You know, that's that's just... I mean, you just look around you and that's pretty evident. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't take a genius to to realize that. But I'm not in that business. My business is maximizing the potential of the person and also the personal satisfaction of the person. And that requires that you come to terms with the shadow and that you deal with him and that you forge an alliance with him that's unbreakable. I was going to ask sort of what, I mean, just in our current sociopolitical climate like how much of everything that's happened could be ascribed to a crisis of confidence in some ways well you know i i do think part of what's happening is that we as a society really need to redefine confidence we, i don't i don't think we understand confidence let me say it even more bluntly i think that a lot of us confuse confidence with arrogance and huh. bluster and okay. a complete lack of recognition of one's own flaws and insecurities. So people who act arrogant and overconfident, some people actually believe that that's true confidence. Now, I know that that's wrong. I know it's wrong because I've had people come into my office and act that way. And within five minutes, they're crying because Hmm. I've gotten them to reveal just how scared they are inside and how all of that is just pure bluster. It's just bullshit. But a lot of us just take a superficial view of life and we actually think that that's confidence. And so we vote for it with, you know, our social media posts or whatever it is and our literal actual votes because we wish we could be that way. In a sense, we respect it rather than seeing through it. And that's, I think, part of what has to happen in our society is a deeper understanding of what confidence actually is. Confidence can't exist in the absence of insecurity. Every human being is insecure. Every human being is afraid. And a person who is willing to actually admit that is actually more confident than the person who refuses to admit it because it takes courage to admit that you're insecure. Hmm. That was going to be another one of my questions is sort of, it's not a purging of that insecurity. It's sort of a learning to live side by side with it. It sounds like. Yes. Yes. I will tell you that in the last five years, I've launched a new career as a public speaker and I openly admit 
to the audiences that I speak to that I was terrified of public speaking. I mean, truly, truly terrified. Mm. The first like 10 workshops I gave, I woke up in the morning and felt like I was a condemned man being led to the gallows. I, every fiber of my being didn't want to go. And I have become confident, not because I wasn't insecure, but because I acted in spite of the insecurity. I did it over and over and over again. The last time I spoke, I spoke to 1,500 people. By the way, after Brene Brown, which is a real trip because she's unbelievably yeah, yeah. competent at what she does. But she, she will teach you to be vulnerable. So that's, totally. that is, that's one, a good thing. Totally, totally. And because I acted in spite of the fear, I'm 100 times more confident now than I was. So in a weird way, part of what I want to teach people is that you can use fear as a guide. In other words, fear tells you what you could do but are insecure about. And if you do it, you get less and less insecure and afraid of it. And that's what confidence is. It's not the absence of fear. It's the overcoming of fear. You know, one of the things I've learned in my time in therapy is that a lot of these emotions like fear and insecurity, we feel great shame about. Yeah. But the shame will keep you from curiosity or asking why and so to your point like what is the fear there to show you and if if you just try to stuff it away then you're never gonna you know actually be able to look at it and see it and maybe have it transform into something else yes yeah exactly i've really gotten to the point where i use my fear as a guide like if i'm really afraid of something i've reached the point where i say to myself that's something i have to do I have to do it because Can you there's give me some an example? public speaking. That's the best okay. example I have. If there are moments where you feel confidence lacking, say before you have to speak to a, a large audience, or even if it's just in a session with a client, I mean, what are some steps you take in that moment to sort of, I guess, um, supercharge your confidence or, or what do you do to sort of to, to work with your insecurity in that moment? The thing that I do the most often that works the best is shadow work. So I take the part of me that's insecure, that's really scared, that really does feel like a condemned man leading, you know, going to the gallows. And I push the feelings out in front of me, which in itself is worth the price of admission because at least I'm not feeling them. You know, they're like right Mm -hmm. out in front of me where I can deal with them. And then what I do is I look deeply into his eyes and what I say is this. You and I are about to get up in front of a group of people and we're going to talk. Here's my promise to you. I love you now and I will love you just as much when this is over. I don't give a shit how well or poorly it goes. I don't care if anyone likes me or hates me. You are my first priority. We were born together. We're going to die together. Nothing else matters except that you and I are together in this experience. And usually that has a really calming effect on me because it puts my priorities back in the right place, which is inner peace, an inner sense of like, I know who I am. And if people don't like this, they don't like it. It's, it's okay with me, you know, kind of thing. And you, I assume you teach that shadow work to your clients, correct? Absolutely. I would and- say 40 to 50% of my work is with the shadow. How receptive are your clients to that work and that idea? Because 
when you just did it on me, like, you know, I've, I've been doing therapy. I am a little willing to go there, but even in the moment I'm feeling kind of like, Oh, this is awkward. This is embarrassing. You know, like this sounds a little crazy and I'm sure I can't be the first person to feel that way. So, you know, and I'm sure people who listen to this will feel that as well. So I'm curious how receptive people are and how you sort of get them to buy into the idea and then maybe what results come from it that, that get people to come back and say, holy shit, you know, this works. Yeah. I, that's a great question. I do not experience much resistance. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Partly because given therapeutic conditions, I find that people are much, much more receptive. But the other thing you should know about me is I am just the least dogmatic person you'll ever meet. If somebody has a hard Hmm. time with shadow work, which I'd say maybe 20% of people do, I go to something else. I don't, I don't really care to me. My job is to find the thing that works and then teach them tools for sustaining that after they leave my office. Because the therapy doesn't really, let me put it this way, the healing doesn't happen in the office. It happens in real life situations outside of the office where I've given the person tools, whatever the tools are, whether they involve the shadow or not, tools to use in situations that make them feel unconfident or insecure. And how often when people, you know, you mentioned that a lot of people who come in who work in the entertainment industry come in or get into the entertainment industry because they want to, you know, they're seeking approval in some way. When they confront their shadow and they come to whether it be full terms or some sort of terms with their shadow and they maybe give up the need for approval do they then lose their passion for acting or or being in the entertainment industry because no that was no i i think it's the contrary actually what i've found is that Look, everybody goes into what they do with mixed motivations. Some of the motivations are impure, like needing attention or whatever, but some part of them also really wanted to act, like really wanted to have that experience of descending down into a character and becoming that character. I mean, actors love that. No matter how narcissistic or how much they want attention, they also really enjoy the experience of morphing into another human being. I mean, I love that experience and I'm not an actor, so I can identify <laughs> with, you know, with how they feel. What I find actually is that after they work with the shadow, they're even better at their craft mm. because they've lost all self-consciousness. They're just not afraid of how, of how anyone views them. They can take notes more easily because they don't get defensive. Again, because defensiveness comes out of insecurity and a need to project a positive image. And anytime you get a note, the person's saying you did it wrong, essentially. But what, what's, what's even more like satisfying for me is that I see them going for it in a fuller way because there's no mm. part of them hanging back or holding back in any way. If a client comes in to do the work with you mm-hmm. and they are just deeply insecure, they're just struggling with some serious insecurity and they commit to doing the shadow work and over time they become more confident. I'm curious how you would characterize or describe 
the difference in how they exist in the world or what their aura or their sort of vibe or frequency is like, you know, after they've done the work and become more confident than it was when they first came in and they were insecure. Like what are the telltale signs? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I mean, there are at least two telltale signs that happen almost with almost everyone. The first is they take greater risks in, in okay. their career because they're not as afraid of exposing their shadow. It's like, if you see my shadow, it's fine with me. In fact, I'm glad if you see my shadow. So remember that one of the worst consequences of hiding or feeling ashamed of your shadow is you stay away from situations where your shadow might be revealed. And Mm. those are professionally the most satisfying situations because those are the riskiest. Those are the situations where you really stretch, where you're really like on the wire, on the high wire, you know, doing the high wire act. But the other thing that happens that in some ways is even more important is that their relationships become more authentic. See, if you're hiding your shadow, you're hiding a part of yourself that is integral to who you are. And your partner, even if he or she has never heard of the shadow, knows. They know that there's something hidden because people aren't stupid. They just know that there's something inauthentic going on. And most of us hide our shadows from one another, particularly the more intimate a relationship gets, the closer it comes to the most embarrassing parts of the shadow. And so we hide it even more. Those things get hidden and that creates a kind of a superficiality or an inauthenticity to the relationship. Well, if you're comfortable with your shadow, then you're bringing all of you to the table. And when you bring all of you to the table, the other person is much more likely to bring all of them to the table. And so relationships become much richer and more satisfying and frankly, more interesting because it's not the same thing every day. It's like, God, I felt this today, or my shadow was thinking that today or, you know, whatever. Does it, is what I'm saying making sense? Cause it's so hard to describe this, but if you're hiding part of yourself, You don't realize it, but you're being inauthentic. Hmm. And without realizing it, you're telling the other person your shadow isn't welcome here. It does make sense. I mean, I think the the thing I'm that just occurred to me is sort of when you carry that sort of insecurity around, you're always performing. Right. And then in that way is like being insecure is is sort of a form of self-absorption in a way, because you're always thinking about how am I coming off? How am I, how is my performance being received? And that keeps you from getting out into the world. Right. And so that would necessarily, it would make sense that that would make affect your relationships and make them less authentic. And so, yeah, I think it does. It definitely makes sense. Clay, that's really well said. And that's another point. And I'm glad, really glad that you brought it up. You don't realize it, but when you're insecure, when you're self-conscious, you're being ungiving because mm. you're holding back parts of yourself because you're embarrassed of them. What the other person experiences is not that you're protecting yourself, but that you're being aloof, cold, ungiving, withholding. So when you're comfortable with your shadow, you're not holding on so tightly and you can give more energy to the other person. And what I find is that when you give energy to people, they blossom. Mm. They just, they just feel comfortable. They settle in and they're much, much more relaxed and willing to reveal parts of themselves. And that's how authenticity and intimacy really occur. 
Yeah, I'm just thinking the word aloof. It's like I'm imagining in that hypothetical connection or you know meeting, the two people go away and they probably both think, oh, that other person didn't like me very much, right? Exactly. And it's like, but but not that's not true. It's just they're projecting their own insecurity onto it. And it's like, how many times does that happen in the world? Exactly. It happens all day, every day, every day. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> is this different from imposter syndrome? Because that was one thing I want to discuss with you. But imposter syndrome just seems like maybe a symptom of this larger shadow. A hundred percent. Yeah. The okay. way I would explain imposter syndrome is it's the feeling of fraudulence you get when you become aware that the image you're projecting doesn't include big, big parts of who you are. Hmm. It's it's different from, in other words, I'm judicious about what I reveal about myself to other people. I'm picking and choosing. But if I'm denying parts of myself, if I myself have a judgment about parts of myself, then I'm working hard to project a false image of myself. And it's mm. the work that you're doing that creates imposter syndrome. It creates that uncomfortable mismatch between who you are and this image that you're projecting of yourself. And the, the amazing thing is people with imposter syndrome are usually exhausted by the age 40 because they spend mm. so much energy trying to keep up this pretense. You know, it's like, it's like they're constantly running an advertisement about themselves, you know, kind of thing. And that's yeah. exhausting. That is exhausting. When I can work with people like that and they start to feel comfortable with their shadows, not only do they reveal more about themselves, they just get a boost of energy because it's like, oh my God, I can stop hiding so much. Totally. And if you keep that hiding, it's like the face becomes the mask at some point, right? And that's, totally. you know, I, I, I was rereading that, the Joan Didion essay on self-respect. And she has that great quote where she's talking about, you know, you have to uh, return to that devastatingly well-lit back alley where like, you know yourself. So yes. you you can pretend to be one way, but at the end of the day, you're going to be, you know, the devastatingly well-lit back alley is, is where you're going to have to come to terms with yourself. And that can be hard if you're performing in some way all the time. I love that the the wording of that the back alley because I see the shadows in there, you know. Mm -hmm. Those that's mm -hmm. shadow mm -hmm. territory. Yeah. Definitely. So, I'm curious what role discipline plays in confidence, right? Cuz I'm almost thinking like the more times you work with the shadow and you show up for it, the easier this becomes maybe. Like if you're disciplined in showing up and and doing the work. Yes, 100% it's really important to be disciplined with the shadow work, but it's also way beyond that. Think about it. If you make a New Year's resolution that you're going to stay away from carbs and sugar, and by day four, you're eating donuts, how much confidence can you have in yourself? Mm. And this is really important because people need to know that a big part of self-confidence is self-credibility. In other words, do I believe that I will carry out the commitments I've made to myself? If the answer to that question is yes, then I'm going to be confident because I'm going to believe that when I make a commitment, it will be done. But sadly, if you ask most people if they really honestly believe they're going to carry out their commitments, they'll admit the truth, which is, yeah, I'll do it for three or four days and then I'll stop. And then within a week... I'll forget I even made the commitment. 
It is mm. mathematically impossible to be confident when you are constantly letting yourself down like that. So people don't realize, but there are parts of you that are watching what you do. And when you make a commitment and then so easily break the commitment, those parts of you lose faith in you. And they should lose faith in you. You're not a credible partner. Hmm. So yeah, 100%. Self-discipline is incredibly, it's an incredibly important component of confidence. If you can't believe in yourself, you can't be confident. Now, over time, if you, if you do the shadow work, do the sort of critical voices still come up and you just know how to deal with them? Or do they sort of abate yes. after a while? I don't, I think it's unrealistic to think that critical voices aren't going to come up. I mean, mm -hmm. again, I've treated people on their deathbed and they're still hearing critical voices. It's just that their relationship to those voices have changed, has changed so dramatically that it's, it's more like, oh yeah, you again, I guess you had to come to the picnic too. Fine. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Where we really get into trouble with critical voices is that we listen to them and the critical voice convinces us that it's our voice. And once you can start to differentiate who you are from who the critical voice is, that's half the battle. They gain their power from sheer repetition. Even if you just say, that's a voice I don't listen to inside yourself. Within a couple of weeks, that voice won't have as much power. Yeah, it's deconditioning in a way. Exactly. I'm just looking at this quote in front of me from Joan Didion that says the, you know, self-respect is the willingness to accept responsibility for one's own life. I don't know why that's popping out to me, but it's just interesting because it almost feels like in that respect, confidence is sort of a harnessing of one's own agency, but also, like she says, sort of being accountable to yourself in a way too, that I think is powerful and interesting. That's exactly right. And you could even substitute the word shadow for life. And it would make sense in the context that we're, that we're discussing. If you take responsibility for your shadow, you can act, actualize yourself in ways you never, you never realized were possible. So as a way of wrapping up, I just want to ask you for, you know, if someone listens to this and, you know, cause I find, I find this stuff very powerful and refreshing, but I'm also aware that not everyone is maybe as willing to believe as I am. And if someone came away from this feeling skeptical or cynical, I'm curious what you would say to them about why they should give this shadow work a try or what the benefits might be if they did give it a chance. I would tell them exactly what I tell my patients, which is I'm going to give you some tools. If the tools don't work, fire me. Hmm. Because if the tools don't work, you shouldn't be paying for them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but and I'm not asking for true believers. I don't. I don't really. I'm not. I'm not a preacher. I'm not, I don't run yeah, a church yeah, or anything. Yeah. But if they work, then who cares why they work? Like we yeah. don't need to even get into that. Just use them. And if the person has particular problems with the shadow as a tool, there are. I mean, in our books, there are gobs of other tools that you can use that will have a very similar effect on you. I mean, one mm. of the tools that I sort of was tempted to mention earlier in the podcast is a tool called reversal of desire. It's a tool that's designed to get you to do things that you're afraid to do or mm. that you avoid or that you procrastinate on regularly. And the reason it 
is important for confidence is that if you don't do the things that you're meant to do, you can't be confident. So you got to get yourself to do those things. Now it's called the reversal of desire because there's always some pain associated with taking action, especially on things that are important to you. There's fear that it won't work out. There's fear that you won't do it well. There's just the pain of getting yourself up off your duff and actually doing something, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I feel that every single time I sit down to write, there's some pain about just having to having to write a sentence that I know is going to be crappy on the first draft and that I'm going to have to edit, you know, over yes. and over again. Yeah. It's called the reversal of desire because our most natural desire as human beings is to avoid pain. That's just built into us. It's called the reversal of desire because what the tool does is it says, bring it on, Mm. bring on the pain, not because I'm a masochist, but because I know it's going to be painful and I have to teach myself to move through pain to get to the other side in order to overcome pain. And that's exactly what the tool does. It it has you visualize the pain and has you visualize running through the pain and getting to the other side and being free of the pain, which then enables you to take the action step. I like that a lot. So that doesn't involve the shadow at all. It doesn't. Yeah. But no, it's a that's less great. sophisticated tool, but it's actually more effective for some people. That's great. It's making me think of this author by the name of James Clear who wrote a book all about habits. And he talks mm. about like starting a new habit. I think he's specifically talking about going to the gym and he's talking about how it's painful. And he's like, but each time you go, you are casting a vote for your desired identity, right? So you want to be a person who goes to the gym, but after three months of going to the gym and every day casting a vote for yourself by going to be the type of person who goes to the gym, you are now a person who does go to the gym. And it sort exactly. of reminded me of that. Exactly. And that that has two points that are really important associated with it. One is your identity consists of your habits. Yes. So if your habits are bad, your identity is going to be bad. You're not going to feel good about yourself. If your habits are good, your identity is going to be stronger. And the other thing I wanted to bring up is that I very often analogize tools to weightlifting. Mm, mm -hmm. We would never expect our bodies to stay in good shape without exercising our bodies, but we expect our minds to function without any intervention on our part. And in my experience as a shrink and just simply as a neurotic human being, my mind completely dysfunctions the moment I stop using tools. My mind needs to be exercised. It ne- I need to put it through its paces in the form of tools in order for it to stay clear and creative and productive. Huh. I like that. Yeah, I like that framework, the mental gym. Yeah, exactly. May I ask before you go what your shadow looks like? Well, you know, my sh- I've been working on my shadow for 35 years. Yeah. So it has taken many, many different forms over that time. I'll tell you the first shadow I came to, which was a 15-year-old adolescent kid standing for some reason at the corner of Chautauqua and Sunset and Pacific Palisades, which is where I grew up. Hmm. And I I went up to him and I said, you know, I'd, I'd like to talk to you. And he looked at me with the most cynical look I've ever seen. He gave me the finger and he said, fuck you, asshole. And he walked away. (laughs) Wow. How's your relationship now? (laughs) Yeah, it's much better now. All right, good. Being disciplined and intrepid, I showed up every single day. And I swear to God, every single day, he gave me the finger and walked away. Damn. Until about a month, month and a half. And completely out of the blue, I walked up to him again 
And instead of giving me the finger, he put his arms on his hips and he said, all right, what the fuck do you want? Why do you keep coming down here? <laughs> and that was an opening. That was, that was my realization was, all right, he's open to something. And huh. he and I began to talk about like what he was so angry at me about, which was basically that I had abandoned him, had never expressed my anger to anyone under any circumstances because it was too unsafe to do that in my family. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we became really, really tight, like really, really good with each other. Huh. But the reason I'm bringing it up is A, to answer your question, but B, also to encourage people not to give up. In other words, the shadow doesn't trust you. And it doesn't trust you for good reason, because you, you, you've basically thrown it into the closet whenever you're around people. You know? Yeah, hasn't yeah, been a, yeah. Hasn't been a happy life for the exactly. shadow. He's like your poor white trash relation. You know, kind of <laughs> so don't expect him to necessarily be your friend automatically just because you heard this podcast and decided to show up for him. <laughs> expect some resistance and persist. Okay. Every relationship requires persistence. And it's no less true with the shadow. I love that. That is a great place to end, though we do always ask one final question. So I'm going to ask you that, which is for a favorite fuck-up. Favorite fuck-up. You know what my favorite fuck-up was? And it's not going to sound like a fuck-up, but for me it was. I became an attorney before I was a therapist. So I went into the wrong profession for me completely. And it took me three long years, actually six long years, because three years of law school and three years of working at a law firm to realize I could not do this anymore. And so in my eyes, it was a fuck up. I mean, it was like, Jesus Christ, I wasted a lot of money. I wasted a lot of time. What the fuck am I doing? But the older I've gotten, the more I realize that it was an absolutely necessary step in my development because it trained my mind in ways that nothing else could have. I mean, this sounds arrogant, but I love the way my mind works as a result of law school. It just, it just hmm. thinks so logically. And it's something that's very helpful to me in therapy because I can see the logical traps that people get caught in and I can see when they're being irrational. Now, fortunately, I also have a really good heart and I'm able to connect with people. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm a lawyer in the room when I'm supposed to be a yeah, therapist yeah. in the room. But it's the kind of training that I wish everyone could have because it is truly a different way of thinking. And you are never as on your toes when you're in a class of 100 people and you're standing up in front of a professor who's taught contracts for 20 years and knows every single trap that he can get you into and you're working as hard as you can not to get trapped and there he is, he catches you in the trap and you have to mm -hmm. sit down embarrassed, you know? Mm -hmm. So it wow. was good training. It was yeah. really, really good training, even though in a way it was a fuck up because it was a real detour from what I should have been doing with my life. <laughs> well, there you go. It's These fuck ups always turn out to not really be fuck up so that's the beauty no, of them and that's a, why we yeah. ask for them well thank you this has been tremendous and i i truly appreciate you sharing all those insights and working with me through that exercise so thank you very much i i do appreciate it you're welcome and i really appreciate the questions because they're deep and profound and i i love exploring these things on a deep level
All right, we went deep today. I appreciate you guys listening. If you are still listening, if you haven't turned off the episode, thank you. Thank you to Dr. Barry Michaels. Thank you to our producer, Jessamine Molly. That is five down so far this season. We've got five more to go. We've hit the halfway point. If you guys are liking the podcast, please subscribe. Tell some friends, subscribe. Or maybe if they're not looking, just go into their phone and subscribe for them. They'll thank you. Also, some of you guys have been reaching out to me on Instagram at Clay Skipper or sending me emails, clay underscore skipper at gq.com. I love hearing from you guys. I really appreciate all the feedback, negative or positive. If it is positive, especially if it's positive, think about leaving a review. Those help. But happy to hear from you guys, suggestions you have, books you think I should read, people I should have on. I'm always open to hearing that. And, and I really do appreciate you guys listening and reaching out. So that is all for this week. We will be back next Tuesday with another conversation on confidence.